clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm. Welcome and thank you for joining us for today's Uniquely Rockefeller special client event. Today's event is the 37th in our series and will be a conversation between Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO Greg Fleming and former Head of Emerging Markets and Chief Global Strategist at Morgan Stanley and current Founder and Chief Investment Officer of Breakout Capital and Chairman of Rockefeller International, Rushir Sharma. If you're unable to be with us for the entirety of today's presentation, a replay will be available shortly after we conclude through our website, rcm.rocco.com, and through the Rockefeller Client Insights podcast series, which can be found wherever you get your podcasts. With that, as always, it's my pleasure to introduce Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO, Greg Fleming. Thank you, Tom, the voice of Rockefeller. Uh, good morning to our colleagues at Rockefeller our clients and other friends of Rockefeller Capital Management, and welcome to, as Tom said, the 37th in our client speaker series. It's my great pleasure here uh, today to have Rashir Sharma with me, uh, who is not only uh, a new uh, member of Rockefeller Capital Management, uh, but as Tom said, is a longtime uh, former colleague of mine. We've worked together now for uh, well over, over a decade uh, and it's great to have Rashir here, and it's also great to have Rashir here. I hope everybody's noticing uh, we're sitting together physically in the same room, uh, reflecting the uh, change uh, in the conditions around the pandemic. So this is the first uh, interview uh, where I've done that, I think, except for the couple that we've done live um, since we, uh, we started this roughly two years ago in March of 2020 when the pandemic started. So it's terrific to be here. Rashir and I were both saying how nice it is to be sitting next to each other and be able to have a proper dialogue. Now, as Tom said, um, Rashir is uh, chairman of uh, Rockefeller International, and he's also the founder of uh, Breakout Capital, uh, which is an investment vehicle that will be focused on emerging markets where he has spent his entire career. Uh, just a couple of the highlights from Rashir's bio. And again, uh, we work together at Morgan Stanley Investment Management from the beginning of 2010 until I left the firm in early 2016. Rashir was head of emerging markets and was when I got there and chief global strategist at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. When he left, there were over $20 billion in client assets that he was responsible for. Uh, he and his team uh, in the emerging market space at uh, Morgan Stanley Investment Management. He started there in 1996, early in his career. Uh, and he's worked his really entire career as an investor and a writer. And one of the things that uh, you all saw me say uh, when we announced that Rashir was coming is that uh, this is a real uh, shot in the arm for us from an intellectual capital standpoint. Yes, he's an investor. Yes, he does a lot of analyses uh, on, on markets and on um, investment behavior, et cetera. Uh, but he also writes it uh, and he puts pen to paper. He's written uh, several best-selling books uh, including uh, The Rise and Fall of Nations, 2016 New York Times bestseller, Democracy on the Road, 2019, most recently The Ten Rules of Successful Nations, 2020. He's a regular uh, correspondent and writer for the Financial Times. He's published in the journal, uh, The New York Times, Foreign Affairs, The Atlantic, The Guardian, Foreign Policy. Uh, he's out there a lot. Uh, he's intellectually curious and constantly pushing the envelope, and we really are fortunate to have him on our team uh, he and I have been hopeful uh, to have a reunion like this at Rockefeller uh, for a long time, uh, and it's come together nicely here. So, Rashir, uh, welcome again to Rockefeller. This is uh, your second 
That's right. Thanks, Craig, uh, for making this happen. Uh, it's been something, as you said, uh, that we long wanted to do. And uh, the pandemic, like many things in life, the pandemic was the catalyst for accelerating this. Exactly. So uh, I, I went through your your history of Morgan Stanley and the writing and all of that that I was here, but um, uh, you know, you, you give people a little sense of, of what you did there, and then um, uh, we'll talk about some of the anecdotes where we started overlapping uh, and and, uh, and getting on the same page quickly uh, when I arrived in early 2010. But you're responsible for a large team, 20 million assets, long time there. So just talk a little bit about the Morgan Stanley experience. Yeah, so I joined Morgan Stanley back in 1996. In fact, I was in uh, India. Um, I was uh, just 22 uh, when I um, was looking to come and do my PhD uh, here in the US. Um, and I was writing and some uh, you know, people at Morgan Stanley uh, happened to look at my writings uh, back then for India's largest financial daily, the Economic Times. And they brought it to the attention of the person who was the chairman of uh, Morgan Stanley Investment Management those days, a gentleman, a legendary figure on Wall Street called Barton Biggs. And uh, who, who, I, who was still at Morgan Stanley when I joined and was actually very helpful to me in the early years there. Yes, that's he right. Really he tried to help me assimilate into the firm and uh, it was terrific. Yeah, so he was one of the legendary figures, one of the so-called founders of the firm virtually. Uh, and, uh, you know, still like remember this, that uh, he... Uh, made a very simple offer to me that do you want to study or do you want to make money? Uh, I said, I'm going to make money. And that was it uh, because uh, I gave up my ambition to do any PhD and uh, joined Morgan Stanley on the investment management side in 1996. And that really, I think that like people like him of those days, you know, like us are, are really figures we don't see uh, too much of, uh, but something which obviously sort of, you know, like I uh, enjoyed because I saw because that's the kind of interaction we had. You know, these are people who genuinely believe in intellectual curiosity and don't care about hierarchies. I mean, Barton was such a legendary figure, but he didn't care. But, you know, like if you were an analyst or associate or you were a senior partner, he'd relate with you and associate with you as long as he thought you had good ideas, just a pure ideas marketplace. So anyway, so and actually, yeah. just to take that theme, since we're talking to uh, a Rockefeller audience, that is the way that we've tried to set up Rockefeller Capital Management, as you know, because yeah. we've met so many of the people here. Uh, and the notion is, if you know, if we want the value added from our team, wherever it is, and we're less focused on hierarchy and, and kind of uh, more rigid corporate orthodoxy and more focused on people having a huge impact. Uh, and and uh, I think that that probably was something that was uh, more evident in, in these uh, big firms that were smaller in those days. They had yeah. that kind of mindset like us. That's right. And that culture was there. I think that uh, that's a culture, at least on the investment management side, that we tried to continue. Some of us who were there as partners out there on the investment management side, that culture we tried to continue, that you could uh, speak your mind, you could, uh, you would encourage the younger people to, um, you know, say what they wanted to. And so that very important, you know, so we became sort of culture carriers. And the fountainhead of that was someone like Barton Bay. So that is the history at Morgan Stanley. And, and it was great. I mean, in terms of, and um, I had a really amazing time out there. It was a glorious ride. I joined at 22. And um, by the time I was 28, um, I was the youngest partner in the history of the firm there. Uh, and this was all because they just liked your ideas and, and were happy to reward that. So I think that that is the kind of culture that I'm used to. That's of course the thing with the youngest partner in uh, Morgan Stanley's history. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so I think that that was that was something which I remember. You know, one of our common friends calling me up and saying that to me, Vikram, uh, that that's what happened back then. So, um, it was a glorious ride, uh, like in terms of that, at 25 years. But I have to think about the next 10 or 20 years in which it's going to be the great firm to work at. And uh, yes, the bet I've taken. Well, you know, Rashir and I. Uh, so I joined Morgan Stanley in early 2010, uh, and we uh, we got to know each other pretty quickly. And I think. Uh, if you're candid, uh, there was some perception that I had come. I was more of an investment banker. I had, you know, I'd been the president of Merrill. You know, uh, did I really understand the, the nuance of the investment management business? So, Rashir and his colleagues were prodding me a little early on, and we had an interaction that uh, tied Rashir and me together forever early on. And uh, uh, Rashir can walk through this, but he was um, he was speaking candidly as he always did, did and does around his views on investing in certain markets and ended up coming back to me. And I'll, I'll get to that. He'll, he'll lay the groundwork. Uh, and my response kind of solidified a, a long-time friendship. So go ahead, tell that story. Yeah, great. So this was in October of 2010. I was uh, going to visit Moscow. Uh, and the uh, organizers of the conference that I was going to called me up literally a couple of days before I was uh, headed there and said that at that point in time, uh, Putin, uh, who was the prime minister, alternating his roles between president and prime minister, that uh, Putin was going to be there at this conference. And the organizers said that uh, Putin's office is keen that you both as an investor and as a writer are coming for this conference, then why don't you present your candid views at the conference about what your thoughts are on Russia? And um, I was like, okay, uh, I'm coming for the conference anyway. I will do that. So I put together a little presentation, and they told me they emphasized the word candid. I took that literally and <laughs> ran it up in Moscow at the Moscow Convention Center in October of 2010. And I went up uh, on stage. Uh, there was Putin sitting on the dais out there, uh, along with Christine Lagarde, who was visiting from France, the then French finance minister and now the head of the IMF. Uh, so I began my presentation, and I began the presentation in a polite way by saying that uh, this is that when Putin took over Russia uh, uh, as a leader in 99 and then 2000 after Boris Yeltsin, Russia was in complete economic chaos. And to his credit, he helped stabilize that situation. Uh, he did carry out some, like, uh, some economic reforms. And if you go back and read his speeches in the early 2000s, they were very much about how he wants to make Russia a part of Europe. You know, he literally would say that uh, if you look, if you read his speeches back then. And I, um, you know, like uh, reminded him of that in terms of what he, like, he was saying back then, but then also said that here we are in 2010. And, you know, like it's been a great decade uh, in terms of commodity prices and oil prices have done so well. And yet the Russian economy is not doing as well as it should be doing uh, because beyond oil and other natural resources, there's a lot of issues with the Russian economy. I, I laid down what all the issues were that, you know, that even the top five vodka brands in the world, not one of them is Russian, that, that you're not able to really sort of, you know, make global brands. You're so focused on natural resources. Something must be wrong in, the, in your system. Surprisingly, yeah, initially. Exactly. So like, <laughs> so like I said that, and I could make out that, you know, like in the audience was not that comfortable, but what I did not know then was, that the speech was being telecast live around Russia uh, because the cameras were on and stuff. So I, 
I went and sat back on, on my seat then, and uh, Putin spoke after me. He, uh, he always speaks in Russian, even though he understands English, he will never ever uh, utter a word in English. He spoke in Russian, and I had the earphones on, and he mentioned a couple of things to my speeches, you know, tangentially, that, okay, these are issues, we need to take care of it, and, and all that. So I, I um, thought, like, it all went okay. But I could make out there was tension in the audience, and the organizers weren't too happy with what had happened. And then I went back to my hotel, and next morning I got a call from you. Uh, yeah, so, so, yeah. yeah, so I can pick it up there. So uh, this was, I guess, in the afternoon Russian time. So yeah. you know, it was uh, uh, in the morning New York time. Uh, and within a couple hours, so by midday, so evening Russian time, I get a phone call from a very senior person, Morgan Stanley, more senior than me, who says, uh, uh, hi, Greg, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you need to fire Rishir Sharma. And I said, oh, uh, why would that be? And uh, he said, because we have a big presence in Russia and they're really unhappy with us. And I said, uh, can I have some context? And, and I, I, you know, I, I was told he gave a speech and they weren't happy about it. And I said, look, this is intellectual capital. This is what we pay him to do. He's running a big fund on behalf of clients. It's a fiduciary obligation. Uh, and not only am I not firing him, but this is what he gets to do. And the person wasn't quite happy with that answer, so they hung up. And uh, to his credit, James Gorman backed me, uh, and that uh, that was why Rashir continued to thrive at Morgan Stanley. Uh, but it uh, it immediately ended up in James's office, where uh, uh, you know Rashir was supposed to leave the firm because of the impact of what he'd said. So, you know, everything about intellectual capital and the fiduciary obligation to the clients that we managed money for was on display there. And uh, you, you, you hopefully flew out pretty quickly, yeah. though. No, I mean, like, that is the advice given to me. In terms of, you know, that's what you told me. Like, listen, you know, this is all getting very tense, et cetera. You're, you're, you're better off, you know, like, uh, leaving. Because what had happened was that the Russian press had gone after me the next morning, which is all Kremlin controlled, and the head of investment banking and all the usual suspects in uh, then of the firm uh, called up and created a real stir about it in terms of that, look at what, you know, is done for the firm's brand, damage, et cetera, all that sort of stuff that they did. And so I left Russia uh, that day and I've not gone back since. Uh, so that was the that was the thing. And I'll just, but for me, what was really important, Greg, and I think this is what sort of made our connection uh, so strong and uh, such an enduring relationship, is that to me, that was a great sign of leadership, uh, you know, which is that in terms of that, you need someone to provide you air cover when you're out there on the field, you're doing this kind of stuff, you need someone to provide you air cover. There was nothing wrong. Now, if I had done something wrong, I would understand it. I had a frank talk. I gave a, you know, like in terms of what, you know, what my views were, nothing was slanderous. It was direct in terms of based on data. Uh, and I think that it was a great sign of leadership uh, to, to, you know, say that uh, nothing doing. And that drew the line, not just with that incident, for many years after that, because I never got a call like that uh, again uh, for many years, at least until you were there. Uh, and I think that that is the very important bit, that you've got to draw the line it was a great lesson also for me in leadership. Well, I appreciate hearing that. And for our clients who are listening to the call, we're working backwards from providing the best possible advice to the clients, full stop. That's what we're here for. Uh, you know, Rockefeller Capital Management exists because we have clients coming to us for advice. We're always going to do uh, the right thing by those clients. And that was an example there. Uh, but it was an interesting 24 hours because, I mean, I heard things like, you know, you're new to the firm. Maybe you're not going to fit into the culture. And, I said, well, maybe I'm not. So if he goes, you know, uh, he won't be alone. So 
we carried that and it had a big impact. And again, credit to James. He was a new CEO. And he, uh, he stood firm, uh, firmly beside uh, both of us there. So yeah. here, as, as we, uh, as we get, get into the intellectual capital now, I think uh, Tom or James, you can pop up uh, Rashir's top 10 page for 2022. We'll do that, Greg, but I would love to add the addendum to this, if you yeah, please. Let's have yes. you recall about the, what happened after that, because I think it's very important context in terms of current affairs, that you and I then basically went to Life with Kid, uh, oh, yes, like to do a conference, if you recall, it, it was in uh, April of 2011, and we had invited George Bush uh, uh, Jr., uh, you know, like in terms of, like who had just been the president uh, to be our keynote uh, like speaker. And as part of that series, I was asked, uh, which I would do quite often at Morgan Stanley, to um, to be the interviewer uh, for that for that series. And so George Bush was there. This was a Lightfoot K uh, in the Bahamas where we were doing this uh, um, session for clients. And um, I asked George Bush, I was still smarting a bit from what had happened in October of 2010. I asked George Bush this uh, in front of our clients that uh, you told me that you looked, uh, uh, sorry, you told everyone that you looked uh, Putin in the eye back in the early 2000s and you saw a friend. He actually said that, right? That in terms of how much, that was a famous line. Yeah. Uh, Bush said that. I said, you said that. What do you make of him now, 10 years later? Because it, literally 10 years later, he said, you know, let me tell you about the change that uh, that Putin uh, like undertook. I think this is a nuance that people don't understand. That we think of Putin today in one frame. What we don't understand is that how political leaders, when they stay in office for too long, how it messes with their heads and how it ends up uh, 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 distorting what their choices are. And I've seen this with politicians, that so many politicians come to power they, uh, with so much promise, but how they leave office is very different yes. than how they started office. And so Bush tells me that in 2001, he makes this great statement about Putin. He says in 2007, after <clears throat> Putin had been in power for nearly a decade, uh, and the oil prices were hundred dollars, and you know, so it was going to etc. So they were going to two hundred, and like you know, like he was like on the top of the world, feeling as if the the economy was bad, everything was good. Uh, Bush says he went to um, uh, uh, Moscow at his invitation in two thousand seven, and Putin took him to his dacha, and there he said that Putin had his uh, you know like dog all over the place, uh, and and you know like there like he was a big dog. Uh, and so Bush uh, asked, uh, you know, like, you know, Putin about the dog, and then Putin basically makes it a pointed reference to tell him, compared to your dog, uh, you know, who was in the White House, and uh, Bush had one of the smaller dogs, like, like, you know, playing around the White House. He said that my dog is bigger, better, and stronger. So he's telling Bush, the president of the United States, in his dacha, that look at my dog. Bigger, better, and stronger. This is in 2007. So you could see it on the mindset words. And Bush himself is reflecting on how much Putin had changed over time. So lots of things here. One, it puts into perspective about Putin, but how he changed over time. To me, you know, this is what informs my writings as well. So the moment he said that, I went back and did a research project exactly on this topic, that what happens to political leaders over time. And the findings I had were fascinating which is to base, and it forms, in fact, the first rule of my book, which is that the longer a political leader stays in power, 
the worse it is for the economy and the markets. So we were able to demonstrate with data that how it, uh, the best performance for the stock market of a country typically comes when a new leader comes to power in the first year or two. Irrespective of which direction. Exactly. You know, like, but it helps a lot if the leader comes to power when the country is in crisis, because then they typically have the mandate to carry out big changes. But the longer the leader stays in power, the worse it is for the economy in the country. I have a question for you, and then we'll go to the top 10. Yeah. Merkel, do you have the same view on her? So I wrote an op-ed about this, in fact, last year for the Financial Times. And um, again, we did a lot of analysis on this, a true exception. She was about the only leader we could find in history who left office with a higher approval rating than when she first of office. I mean, I think she did a terrific job. Exactly. She, not having her there in the middle of what's going on right now is a problem. Yeah, but I'm saying, you know, like, that's really like a piece of research, and I'll be happy to share it again here because we really did a research project on this. Like, about the only political leader in the world to leave office. I mean, they're like, after a long time, too. How long did she serve? 15, uh, 17, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, one of the longest leader uh, serving leaders, and but to leave office with a higher approval rating than when she joined is absolutely uh, exceptional. Even in the United States, if we look at most presidents, by the time they, you know, like in terms of the leave office in the eighth year, you know, that even yeah, in terms of that, there are a lot, you know, like they better remembered once they're out of office. Yeah. But even Bush, too, you know, like when he left office, his approval ratings were abysmally uh, low. Now, uh, yeah, he's been yeah. he makes that joke in his speeches now, too. Yeah. He says, you know, look at me now. Exactly. <laughs> so let's go to top 10 trends of 2022. And what Rashir is going to do here is just pick a couple because we're going to um, go around the world and I'm going to get his views on markets around the world so we don't have to stop on everyone here. So go ahead and, and hit a couple of these. Yeah, sure. So, I, you know, so there are. Uh, these top 10 trends, this has been a tradition of mine, which is that for the last so many years, what I've tried to do it at the beginning of the year, I try and come up with what are my top 10 trends of the year. Uh, and then, you know, we, we first start by reviewing what those trends are uh, and then uh, how well they played out. But uh, these are some of the trends that I came up with, uh, which are likely to define 2022. So one of the big trends I'm going to speak about here is greenflation. And I think that this is something that we are seeing that across the world, what we're seeing currently is that as there's massive pressure to cut down on the supply of commodities uh, in terms of that, you know, it's politically incorrect almost to set up a new mine or a new oil rig, that supply of many of these commodities has been severely curtailed. In fact, it's down about 50%, uh, the new supply for some of these key commodities. Uh, so you have a massive supply cut down, and yet the demand for these commodities is still quite strong. Ironically, that exactly the kind of commodities that you need to build the new green infrastructure, which we all want, copper, aluminium, these things also are the commodities for which supply is being cut. So you got this perfect storm in the commodity markets where you have demand, which is still high and increasing because you need this to build a new green infrastructure. And yet the supply of these commodities has been dramatically cut. And so we have this pattern out there of what we call reinflation, that commodity prices are going up. So uh, in fact, the latest- is that, a, is that a temporary, I mean- you know, No, I think it's going to last for a while, but- How long? I mean, so I've just written like a piece on this, in fact, coming out on Monday for the Financial Times, and I can preview it here, that the best trade of this decade, according to me, is long commodities, short technology. Because I think the world is heavily over-invested in technology. They know that people have been investing in everything. They're almost searching 
for the next big idea. And here, if you look at the US stock market today, it's quite um, amazing to see something. That if you look at the US stock market today of all the listed companies, uh, the market cap of the unprofitable, uh, unprofitable companies today is just under $3 trillion. And 85% of those companies which are unprofitable, 85% of the market cap at least, are tech companies. So uh, uh, a decade ago, when I wrote my first book, Breakout Nations, the central thesis of that book was that uh, commodities and bricks are overdone, uh, you know, all the Brazil, Russia, India, and China, and the true breakout nation of the world was America. And because of technology, America would have a great decade. I wish I'd invested my career better <laughs> rather than stuck with emerging markets over the past decade. But today, I think that we are once again in a role reversal, that the, that the technology story has gone far. And many of the ideas which are coming out of the tech space today, I think, are uh, great, but almost premature, uh, which is that it take a long time for these ideas to become profitable. Just like in 2000, Amazon and all were coming up with these ideas. It took a while for those ideas to become really profitable, and you had a decade when you know these things did not do that well. So I think that today we are at a similar juncture where the commodity, uh, where the technology cycle seems to be in a period of consolidation and shakeout. It seems to have entered that. Um, and on the other hand, the commodities, which typically do well when technology doesn't do that well in the 1970s or even the 2000s, I think that it's it could be a good decade for commodities because supply is so constrained. So uh, the kicker of the article, as I said, was that last decade, uh, the um, uh, popular tagline in the world was that data is the new oil. I think that now the tweets are coming out saying that oil is the new data. Uh, so we went full circle again. But what? But you know, we can move on to the second one you want to highlight here. But uh, the supply side does react pretty quickly. I mean, you look at fracking in this country now immediately. That's right. You know, you're a hundred dollars, and all of a sudden, fracking everywhere in the country again. So you know, that's why I asked you how long it will last for. I I I, I see it. Uh, but you know, I think in two or three years, you could correct, right? I mean, if you think it, it long takes a while longer because I think that the green politics now is very different. Yeah. That the pressure not to do stuff is much, much greater. Even in places, you know, like, um, I'll just take it at, at a global uh, basis. Even places like Chile, uh, Peru, these countries, which were the wild west of mining, right, that you could go and you could just mine anything there. Even in these countries, now to set up a new mine is taking five to seven years. So the politics around the world has changed a lot. We all want a greener future. We are all very focused on ESG and a, and a greener future. But unfortunately, how to get from point A to point B is going to be a bit of a challenge. That we want that, but the pressure now to set up new mines, to set up new oil rigs, even on the fracking side, is a lot more intense than it used to be. So therefore, the cycle could last a bit longer than uh, what has traditionally been the case. That's fair. Uh, you want to hit another one of these? Yeah, sure. So I think that the other point that I'll uh, talk about here is demographics. You know, it's it's one of those very basic points. I feel. It's something which is underappreciated. That if you look at economic growth historically, the two drivers of economic growth. One is the number of people who come to work, and two, how productive they are. One thing about the global economy we all underappreciate is that the global economy grew very rapidly in the 1950s and 60s and even 70s and 80s because the world was seeing a massive explosion in population growth. So a lot more people joining the workforce. That was historically ever the case. Last few years, in fact, last 
couple of decades, what we have seen is that the population growth rates around the world, and therefore the labor force growth rates around the world, have been dropping dramatically. To put this in perspective today, there are 51 countries in the world today where the labor force growth is shrinking. Uh, this number in the 1980s uh, used to be two. And, and that's primarily developed markets? I mean, it's, it's, it's Europe, a, it's... Exactly, like it's a mix. Yeah. So in fact, you know, this is one of those things about, it's like Europe, it's the likes of uh, Russia, uh, also the likes of South Korea. So China. China is the, is the key example of this. So it's really interesting that for the first time in China's history, uh, at least like recorded history, next year, China's total population will start declining. Not just labor force, the total population will start declining. And this is where America for long had a comparative advantage, that America's demographics and population growth rates were much stronger than the rest of the world. But now, even in America, the growth rates are declining and it's not being helped in a uh, theme I know, Greg, which is close to your heart, about an immigration bust that's taking place. Yes. Which is that there's been a collapse in immigration rates into America. And that is something which is, so if you look at the difference between Europe and America over the past 20 years, in per capita income terms, the growth of Europe and America was almost similar. But the overall economic growth rate in US was much higher because the US population growth rate, the labor force growth rate was much higher. That comparative advantage that America got, a lot of it was due to much better immigration policies. That gap is now closing. And I think that that's one of the challenges that uh, America will face now. Yeah, Rashir and I have talked about uh, uh, a, uh, an immigration plan and policy that both parties would come to the center on uh, that would put the United States, because this could be a competitive advantage because our population away from immigration is, is flattening uh, as well. As well, Yes. And we've also, I, I forget the statistic, but you know, uh, a significant percentage of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies are immigrants. And a significant percentage of engineers and, and, and people in the technology world are immigrants. Uh, so it's been a, a real source of strength to our economy and our society. Um, and, and, and a lot of the United States uh, that the people would, would support a kind of centrist uh, immigration policy that uh, that was focused on economic growth and you know and bringing talents into the country that we need. Yeah. Um, so second theme uh, is uh, immigration. You want to hit one more before we move on? Yeah, sure. So the other sort of uh, thing, which is um, you know like something I've been harping on, is how the global economy is in a bit of a debt trap. Which is that if you look at it today, the total amount of debt in the world today. Uh, is about you know like 400 percent of GDP. Wow. You know, yeah. So you know, like it. So it's an incredible amount of debt that the global economy has today. So uh, in terms of, and that number used to be almost 100 percent of GDP. Uh, this total debt, including private sector, all all sorts of debt. So massive explosion in debt. But I think this has some a very uh, like important consequence, which is the ability of central banks to increase interest rates in such an environment is much more limited. I know that today we're all, uh, you know, sort of jumping over each other to predict how much the Fed's going to increase interest rates. But the fact that the debt levels are so high today is a natural constraint because if you increase interest rates too much, the entire economy takes a hit. Uh, so I think that that's why I say that we are in a debt trap. That yes, interest rates have to go up. They are far too low, inflation's too high. But the ability of central banks, including the Fed, 
to raise interest rates is severely constrained now by the debt trap. So the feedback mechanism you get is much stronger now because the debt levels are so high. So let's go to that because macroeconomics is one of the things that we're going to talk about here, uh, here and around the world. But uh, let's start with the Fed and, and interest rates because they did that. How are they going to balance that going forward? I mean, clearly, you, you said this to me a year ago. We were with Vikram at dinner. The the, uh, the the rate of inflation, if you included rents, was already much higher. Jimmy Chang's been talking about that uh, at, uh, at Rockefeller as well. So we, we've got inflation that if you include rents, is potentially double digit. Yes, housing prices. You mean. Yes, yeah, yes, yes, yeah, exactly. yes. So, so and, and even if you don't, it's seven or eight percent. Yeah, you have a two two percent tenure. I mean, those two things are not going to work long term. So, the Fed is very very focused on this. But how do they thread? Your point is, if if they if rates go too high, you can't service the debt. You start to so how, where are they going to where does it go from here? How are they yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I think that's a real problem, and that's why the yield curve is flattening. This is a you know like, a, and I think that that's the reason why uh, you know like the big problem for the. U.S. economy and the global economy over the next uh, year is going to be that economic growth could slow down more than what people think, uh, just because the the ability of financial markets of uh, the economy to handle high interest rates is very limited, even on the financial market side. The size of the financial markets today is four times the size of the global economy. And what was that ten years? Yeah, I mean it's been rising steadily over time, but in the 1980s it used to be similar. Wow. So, you know, the, so when you had a 1987 stock market crash, the feedback loop on the economy wasn't that much because they were similar, right? In terms of today, if you get a market crash, the feedback loop is a lot greater because the size of financial markets is four times larger than the size of the underlying economy. But doesn't that also constrain the Fed then? The Fed also has to be watching markets too. They can't uh, move in such a fashion that they, they crack it too much, right? So that's why we see such a paradigm shift in financial markets. That's why they, you know, like, you know, like the whole sort of comfort because you know what would happen for the last few years is that whenever the economy would weaken or that financial markets would come down, the Fed could just end up putting more stimulus out there and have easy money because the inflation they look at, the consumer price inflation, was so well constrained. That's no longer the case. That's what makes the market environment now so much more difficult and challenging. And why we're seeing this unwind of tech stocks and other things take place, because the liquidity environment is bound to change in this uh, scenario. So, uh, uh, and this is not easy, it's a difficult question. Jimmy says the same thing when I ask him these questions. Second half of this year, 2023, how do you see it unfold? The, the Fed steps, will they get, you know, can we get inflation back in the box more? Doesn't have to go back to 2%. Uh, you know, rates go to, to the Fed funds at 2% is where it was pre-pandemic. So that can't choke the economy, right? I mean, so, but you tell me. The, no, I think otherwise what's gonna happen. Well, I think that, you know, like the chance of us getting a pretty serious economic shock, the chances of that are going up all the time. The Fed has left it too late to normalize interest rates. And now that it's going to have to do it, you know, like it has no choice. Even the political consensus has shifted because historically, or at least for the, you know, like the, poli the political class never liked high interest rates. Uh, the Democrats and stuff, you know, even Republicans would never be pleased with high interest rates. Now they understand that inflation is such a big issue. So you have very little opposition to higher rates. So unfortunately, I think that next year, the chance that the yield curve inverts and you get a very serious economic downturn, to me, 
his visa behind. And what would the if that happens, the curve reverts, we end up with a recession. What is the Fed's response to that? Is well, I think the Fed then you know will obviously have to sort of change course. But I think that even if they haven't finished the break, break yeah, break. yeah. But I think that you know because I think that the consequences of, of that are high. So I think that that is a real issue that the Fed will have to deal with. Now, of course, I do feel that the inflation numbers beginning about March, April will begin to cool off somewhat. But you're not going back to two percent. You know that that seems a long time away. So we have this combination of lower growth and higher inflation in the coming few years. Well, let's go, I mean, because you've got insight into so many different parts of the world for sure. So let's kind of walk around the map as I promised uh, our listeners we would do. Um, you know, let's start uh, in Europe and then we'll go to China and Asia. So uh, when you look at Europe as an investment opportunity, are there specific markets you like there? You know, one of the things that I'm fond of saying, and I was just saying this with a client over breakfast was, um, you know, the American innovation machine is the heart of our economy. And even with pressure on technology, the, the, the amount of push in this society for the next technology to move forward is just incredible. I think we're unique in that way. So when you look at Europe, Eastern Europe, are there places to invest? And then, as I said, we'll go to China and Asia. Yeah, right. To put this like in perspective, I've always been a long-term bull in America. In fact, I wrote an essay for the foreign affairs, as you know, like, even a couple of years ago, saying how America has been the comeback nation, that America has done so well over the last few years, and I think that's underappreciated. Having said that, I think that the coming few years, the way to invest is much more global. You know, there's one, you know, because the American, uh, so much of this game is about how much is priced in. So the American stock market today is at a 100-year high uh, relative to the rest of the world uh, in terms of both valuation and prices. And I think there's time for some of that to correct. Um, one anomaly out there is that America today, the American economy is 25% of the global economy, yet the American stock market today is nearly 60% of the global stock market capitalization. So I think that gap is bound to close. And America will always be a great nation, but that gap for a while is bound to close. Last decade when we started, the numbers were 25 and 40. Now it's 25 and 60 in terms of the gap between America's economy and America's share in the global stock markets, right? So I think that gap is bound to close and going global, I think, is the way in the coming decade. Now, uh, so that's the big strategic, I think, uh, choice that uh, investors have to make. The second plan is to go a bit more specific uh, in terms of get granular. Okay, which are the places to do? Uh, and there, as you mentioned, in Europe, I think Eastern Europe has a lot of promise. Uh, you know, it's very difficult for countries to graduate from becoming developing countries to developed countries. To put this in perspective, today in the world, there are about 200 odd economies uh, which are tracked by the IMF. Of these 200 economies, only, I think, about 38 or 39 are classified as uh, developed countries. All the others are classified as developing or emerging countries. And many of these countries have been developing and emerging forever like Brazil and Mexico, they just never seem to. And what yeah. are the benchmarks? I mean, develop this, and it's, it's not a, it's obviously not just size. So why do they keep them in the developed category? Inflation or? No, they look at per capita income. Okay. So per capita income is generally the very broad rule. I mean, there are other criteria too, but generally it's the broad rule. And if a country's per capita income is more than $25,000, it typically is a developed country. If a, if a country's per capita income is less than $25,000 or so, it's typically an emerging market. Right. Uh, so uh, America's per capita income today is close to $60,000. Uh, 
China's today is just about 10,000 dollars. So it's you know it's all about the population sizes, which makes very different in terms of economic sizes. But per capita income is generally the thumb rule about how you uh, like segregate these countries. But coming back to the point, very difficult for countries to graduate in terms of it because there's so many institutional problems and corruption and other issues which happen in these countries. So very difficult. Having said that, I think that in Eastern Europe, the next countries to make it to the class of developed countries from emerging countries is likely to all come from Eastern Europe. It's already happening with the likes of Czech and all, but among the larger economies, something like a Poland. I think that these are economies which could become the next developed economies in pretty quick time, and maybe even hungry after that. So I would say that Eastern, within Europe, Eastern Europe has a lot of promise. Uh, now I do feel that even countries like Germany and all the innovation and what they do is pretty significant. We saw that with the vaccines as well. But I'd say that the, that's the issue. And of course, my favorite country that I've always written about and said is like Switzerland. I mean, I remember discussing this with you a couple yes. of years ago as well. I wrote a piece about this, the happy capitalist of Switzerland. And what? And I think it's a it's a piece that I, you know, but it's a country that I've studied a lot that it's currently the richest country in the world in terms of per capita income. What, what uh, it uh, it's like, I think about $85,000 something like that. Maybe there's only one technical country like a Luxembourg or something, but yeah. great, among all countries for practical purposes, Switzerland is the richest country in the world. And it's a very good case study about how you can get the balance correct between uh, government intervention and yet having the government size to not be too large. And you know, how do you get the balance correct? What makes Switzerland such a unique case? And it's one of the top 20 economies in the world. So it's not some small yeah. economy which is valid. And I, you know, so it's an economy I like a lot. It's a country I like a lot. It's a great case study about where capitalism is still working and how it works efficiently. So, so I would so, say that. Okay, yeah. so let's go to uh, uh, countries that you know really well, uh, India, China, and the rest of Asia. You know your thoughts on, on uh, and you have um, uh, pretty famously been uh, uh, careful on China for years now as yeah. an, as as an, an investment on a macro basis. They've underweighted that. Yeah. Uh, but talk about India and China and the uh, rest of Asia. Yeah. So you know, like I was a, a great admirer of China because in terms of what they've done with economic reforms is incredible. Everyone thinks about the Chinese government as having been great. The other economic reform, but the basic thing in China was that they kept but the state kept retreating, and that's what made China so good. Like it started from a complete communist state, complete control of the economy, kept retreating, let the private sector flourish, and did extremely well. The issue with China the last few years is twofold. One, that it has become a lot more status now. That the government there is really reasserting itself a lot more than it did in the past. And the second issue is debt. That it, you know that. China today, as I mentioned, has a per capita income which is much less than the United States, so a lot less wealthier. Yet its debt levels are not that dissimilar to the United States, so its model has become much more debt-driven, and that I think is a warning sign for me as far as any country goes, uh, and and with China and the demographics. So the combination of debt, demographics, declining productivity because of increased government intervention is all something that makes me cautious about China. Very large economy, there will be plenty of opportunity, but I'm cautious as far as China is, is concerned. India, my home country, the line I've always had about India is that this is a country that consistently disappoints the optimists and the pessimists, right? <laughs> we keep saying, yeah, this is the country that's gonna you know, be the next China, and it does that. Plenty of opportunity out there. 
We like it from an investment perspective, but never get too bold up to thinking that this is going to be the next China because there are always too many institutional constraints out there. It's a messy democracy, how things function out there. So I think that that is an issue. So um, uh, now talking portfolio terms, I would very much still have an overweight exposure towards India on a strategic basis, more underweight China, but I you know, keep my expectations in check as far as those two economies are concerned. And then what about the rest of Asia, which was a, a, a significant part of your portfolio you know, earlier in your career? I don't know where you are in that now. Yeah, so I think that in terms of, you know, there are some very promising economies in uh, Asia. I've always thought that Vietnam could be the next China. There's no country going to have the size of China, but as a manufacturing prowess, Vietnam is doing really well. Uh, it's sort of taking all the best ingredients of the Chinese model and implementing it because the key to long-term prosperity is through manufacturing. And so China, you know, like uh, did that. I think Vietnam's doing that. I'm getting optimistic on places like Indonesia as well. Again, a bit of a messy country with lots of problems, but I think that they're at a decent stage for the cycle to do well. So yeah, between India, Indonesia, Vietnam, I would have plenty of places there to allocate capital in emerging markets, Eastern Europe is what I've said. And then come to Latin America. Uh, this goes back to the start of our discussion that I'm relatively bullish on commodity prices. And I think places in Latin America will naturally benefit from that. Is Brazil or Mexico ever going to become a developed country? No. Uh, but I think that in terms of can they have a good cycle like Brazil, because things are so beaten down just now, you know, like to put in perspective that Brazil today in the emerging market context, its weight in the index is less than 4%. Wow. You know, when I started my career, it was 25, 30%. Yeah, so. so if it's just less than 4%, it tells you there's a lot of value out there uh, as far as Brazil's concerned. That's what tells you they've had a very difficult run. Very difficult run in the currency. You know, when I first went to, you know, I'm mean, sorry, uh, uh, a decade ago, the Brazilian currency against the US dollar was one and a half. One dollar would get you one and a half real yeah. in Brazil. Today, it is over five. So massive amount of currency depreciation and the key to investing often is getting the currency correct. That if you have your currency entry point correct, you can make a lot of money. And what really helped America over the last decade is that when we started a decade ago, the American dollar was cheap. Uh, like you go around the world and you'd say, you know, like you'd have, uh, the cheapest currency in the world would seem to be America. Uh, so you'd have people flooding from the rest of the world, coming shopping to the stacks across the street here and stuff. Today, when we look at our measures, the dollar is one of the most expensive currencies in the world. So I think that there's a big shift out here. Like to quality. Yeah, but yeah. And now we're seeing that change because even if you look at the current crisis happening in Ukraine, the dollar is not really benefiting that much. Uh, so it tells you that this trend is now tired yeah. and something different is about to emerge. One more region and then uh, uh, there's a couple of questions I want to ask you and then we have a couple of final topics. But Africa, are there countries there that you invest in? Uh, it's just too small and too fragmented. You know, there are 50 countries in sub-Saharan Africa, very difficult uh, to get size out there. But yeah, sure, we're going to look at it. But generally, the best way to access Africa, I found is through South Africa. South Africa has the combination of some uh, a developed country's financial architecture and yet a lot of expo economic exposure to the rest of Africa. So I think some companies in South Africa could look interesting as a way, way to place uh, play Africa. Otherwise, it's very fragmented, too small uh, in terms of how to do it. But generally, a more bullish environment for commodities, metals, uh, better times for these places. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, well, you know, for our, our clients and our colleagues listening, I mean, the tour around the world that Rashir is able to do and has done for a long time is uh, is uh, quite impressive. So we have a couple questions. Uh, and if you saw me looking at my phone, I was trying to make sure I could read them on the screen. Uh, but Larry Knowlton, uh, just to finish off the conversation on macro and Fed, says, uh, I think the plan is, um, uh, given the debt, is to inflate our way out. Uh, you were talking about the balance there, but, uh, you know, is that where the, I mean, is the Fed going to tolerate higher inflation in part, as Larry's inferring here, to uh, to diminish the value of the, the overhang of the debt? Yeah, I think there is some, uh, you know, like uh, merit to that argument. The only two constraints are this, that the political pushback to inflation is very important, right? That politicians don't like too much inflation. So the fact that can we have an Argentina where you just inflate your way out of the debt, I think the institutional constraints are pretty severe. So, uh, so and if you end up getting, you know, like a situation where asset prices decline very quickly, then you could have a Japan-type situation where you're dealing with asset price deflation. So I'm not quite sure that, yes, I mean, I think that you, the Fed will tolerate high inflation, but I do feel the fact that there are political constraints to it because in places like America, as you can notice, that the, the number one reason why Biden's approval ratings today are so low, people say that, is because of inflation numbers. Which they didn't see coming. Yeah, exactly. Actually, that, isn't that the reason in the final analysis why Manchin was able to stop the second bill? Yeah, exactly. Because people were like, well, wait a minute, he's right. Because Manchin was talking about inflation. We're going to spend another... Two trillion dollars, and 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 eventually he carried that on. Exactly. So yeah. I think that that's the very, the very important point, which is that the institutional constraints that we have uh, for inflating our way out of debt are quite significant. Okay. So uh, a couple more questions uh, here, and then um, well, while I'm uh, pulling the questions up, I, I had a topic that I thought people would really like to hear from Rashir on, and that is advice that you give to young people and how that's changed from five years ago. And, and what changes you think will occur in five or 10 years from now when you're giving that advice? Right, right. You know, this is the conversation we were having this weekend. And I'd say that I'm a bit sort of shy of giving advice because it's all very personal. And, uh, you know, for every rule, you have an opposite rule in life uh, in terms of what you say. But I can just relate in terms of what I try and practice and something that I think that we discussed, which is live life in parallel and not in series. Uh, that for me is one of those things which I sort of really stick by, which means that your every week, your every month, if not your every day, should be complete. I know, I know too many people who think that like to work, uh, you know, like in a very compartmentalized way or just say that oh, I'm going to work really hard Monday to Friday. Or I'm going to work really hard for three years. And then after that, I'm going to take some time off and stuff. I often find that that is not a source of happiness, which is that you'd rather be switched on all the time. Uh, but live life in parallel, which is that do uh, do whatever your passions are all the time. Don't like wait for it in terms of the fact that it's going to happen sequentially. So if it means that you want to spend some time on the weekend thinking about work, do it. And the flip side is if on a working day, you feel like doing something different, especially in the investing business, I tell this to people that if you don't have good ideas on a particular day, that's fine. You can just take some time out, but don't sort of try to say, I, you know, that I got to work really hard only from A to B and then sort of compromise the bottom line. For those of you, and there are many of you who know me well, we, we were having this conversation Saturday when we were having our regular weekly call. Uh, and I was saying to Bashir something similar, which is uh, I, I like to uh, to use weekends to, to be able to catch up on things and to not have the relentless pace of meetings every half an hour or hour. Uh, you can think more clearly. Uh, so I don't shut it off. And again, 
those who work closely with me know that's the case. Uh, you know, in the final analysis, people have got to reach for what works for them as individuals. Uh, the common ground, though, even if it's a different approach between what Rashir is saying, which I agree with, and maybe other approaches, is uh, a formula that allows you to feel stimulated and, and that you're still on your front foot in life, whatever that is, as opposed to having it uh, you know, happen in your case in mind, just in stints. So I have uh, two questions that were um, uh, sent in. Vittoria Bufalari says the following, thank you for sharing some valuable insights and perspectives. Regarding the greenflation trend, do you see this as a market inefficiency caused by the lack of ambitious legislation and government policies in contrast with the attempt by some, but not all companies to implement sustainable investment strategies? Yeah, so I mean, I think that the trend here is the fact that, you know, we, that we all agree on the objective and yet I feel that there is not enough thought gone into, you know, like how do you get the transition correct, right? That, you know, like that we all want a greener future. We all believe in, uh, you know, that, like, that, that, that climate change is an issue, but we just are not spending enough time in thinking about how do you get from point A to point B by just saying that, okay, shut everything down and things will get solved. Yeah. So I think that much more thought needs to be given to this, that, okay, how are we going to get from point A to point B? What, what does it mean about, I mean, I don't, I don't know enough about this stuff, you know, is nuclear sort of energy the answer? What is it in terms of what the answers are to get from point A to point B? I think that it's easy to say shut, but, but okay, if you shut it down, you know, like you may end up exacerbating the problem. I think that, that enough thought hasn't been given to that. Well, I mean, the, the current macro scene clearly demonstrates the, the power of the point. Yeah. We're at, you know, $100 oil and it could go higher. Yeah, I mean, there's and, no spare capacity in the world. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, now you've got the macro shocks and, you know, uh, yeah. it's amazing. Uh, uh, David Harris was telling me the other day that, uh, you know, the American government is very focused on the Iranians not pumping more oil. Yeah. So, you know, talk about an irony there. Um, for sure, a completely different angle here. Um, uh, sent in by um, one of our colleagues, uh, and this is something that's, uh, that's a, a germane topic everywhere now. Can you speak to your early experiences in raising capital as an underrepresented person of color? What were some of the challenges and lessons learned? You might have been one of the first uh, investors you know, from, from India in this business in 1996. So uh, did you find it more challenging or just blow right through that? And but that was the great thing about the American system that, I mean, like, you know, like I, I found that, you know, like in America, the, uh, there was a lot more thing, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, like uh, I, but you face all sorts of uh, funny things here. Let me tell you like about this anecdote that when I first started my career, we were like, I was managing a pool of money for Julian Robertson's uh, fund. Uh, you know, he had carved out about $100 million uh, to uh, like to manage it, you know, I mean, like in India. Uh, and I came to uh, New York to... Uh, he was a Tiger. Yeah, like he was a Tiger. Yeah, the Viking guys came out of Tiger too. That's right. It was Halverson. Yeah, one of the Tiger Cups. Right? Yeah. So I went and one of the very famous, like other Tiger Cups came out of there and who ran into big trouble last year over a trade. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to name it, but, uh, but he was the person in charge of that India allocation. And I still remember his conversation with me when I met him. He was from like of Korean origin. And, uh, you know, he, like he goes to me, he looks at my card and those are the days when he could say these things. He goes to me after looking at my, in my card uh, because he was the one who was working with Julian and he was like, one of the, uh, like responsible for this. He says like, what is it the matter with you Indians? And I was like, why, why do you say that? 
He says, you know, we come here and change our first name to make it so easy for Americans to be able to pronounce it. Why don't you change your first name? Wow. The, yeah. This was it. This is the mid 90s. Yeah, this yeah. is the mid 90s. Completely unacceptable. Exactly. So this is the mid 90s. So I'm just to tell you that, you know, we faced a lot, you know, like that kind of stuff that you faced. And just having come from a background where you're used to hearing this kind of stuff, it stayed with you, but there's nothing you could do about it. So those were the kind of challenges we faced uh, back then, you know, when I first started my uh, career. But we just said, we're going to work harder and, you know, like just create enough performance. And that's what's going to keep attracting capital. Uh, so just kept flying our way through. But that was the anecdote back then. It's a great formula. This is why, you know, uh, and actually I was looking uh, through my phone there. Uh, Candice Style, thank you for sending that in. Is this, you know, a lot of the movement around diversity and inclusion is positive. You don't have to hear that. Uh, it's a completely different world than it was uh, 25 years ago. Now, in the interest of time, I'm going to um, uh, get to kind of wrap up. Um, one of the things I promised you I was going to ask you is, um, uh, you know, we, 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 we have the video and, and we took the entire economy here and around the world and we put it on screen and we kept it going, basically. Yes. Which was remarkable. Yes. It's like somebody the other day I was watching a movie from the late 80s and, and uh, you could talk to somebody on video by putting a, a disc in a, in a machine. And when, you, when I first saw that movie, it was Aliens, for anybody who wants to see it, it's a great movie, quite scary. Uh, it was, wow, look at that technology. And now we do it all day, you don't need to stick anything in, I can just dial up and I can get the face of the person I'm talking to. So massive change from a technology standpoint. 10 years from now, what might be different in our lives that, uh, that you see coming out of, and, and these things are hard to see. Now, I don't think anybody knew we were gonna have Zoom, Microsoft Teams, and all of this change the world. But, you know, the pace of technology innovation, and as you said, Amazon in 2000 was unprofitable and took a while. Yeah. You know, and now, you know, look, look at the change that it's brought in society. So what do you think we're going to see in 10 years? You know, I think it's easier for me to say what we'll not see than what we will see. That's good. That's and, good. Yeah. yeah. And let me put this in, like, uh, it's like another piece of, like, fascinating data, and again, like, as uh, ties in, like, to the investment side. Like, Greg, you know, I did this analysis for the last, you know, whatever, so many decades. If you look at the top 10 companies in the world by market cap in any uh, at the end of each decade, eight or nine change, right? So which is that if you looked at the top 10 companies by market cap in, let's say, 2010 and compared to like 2020, eight or nine were companies that were not in the top 10 in 2010. Similarly, if you look back in 1990 compared to 2000, you'll find something very similar. So therefore, I feel that, yes, things will change, technology will change, but the chances that the incumbents will be able to be on top of that new technology are not that high. So I think that in terms of the fact that, so therefore, we've already seen cracks develop in the likes of uh, Meta, Facebook, and et cetera. I think we'll keep seeing this. So for the first time now, Facebook has dropped out of the top 10. The Chinese companies, Alibaba, Tencent, they're no longer in the top 10. So uh, once you reach that elevated height of being a top 10 company in the world, uh, uh, you know, like after a great decade, the odds that you can do that for another decade are low, very low. I have to say, I completely agree with you. Yeah. And we looked at this analysis, I think I was looking at this way back when I was at Merrill, the, the percentage of S&P 500 companies that are still in the S&P 500 after 10, 20, 30 years, it is remarkable. And that was before the pace of technology innovation. And I, I, I've still the anecdote, which, which you'll appreciate. I was at uh, Davos, the World Economic Forum, representing Maryland in 2005. And we had one of the 
co-founders of Research in Motion then. And he was a rock star because yeah. everybody wanted the Blackberry. Yeah. And in fact, his company had made pink Blackberries for Bill Gates's wife, for you know, Michael Dell's wife. I mean, they were doing they they were so hot, the Blackberry, everybody people wanted different colors and um, and research in motion is gone, and it's been effectively gone for years. Yeah, you know the iPhone comes out in 07 and they crush it. You know, and everybody remember the jokes around BlackBerry, CrackBerry. You know, they exactly. stop using it. So, completely agree with you. So, uh, Rashir Sharma uh, is now uh, one of our colleagues at Rockefeller Capital Management. You'll see him walking the halls. We will make him available to our our clients. He's happy to talk to clients. So, for our private wealth teams and our client advisors on the call. Uh, uh, we, Chris Dupuy and Tim O'Hara, Michael Outlaw, uh, Grace Yoon will be uh, all, all, uh, working on different ways of, uh, of Rashir talking to clients. Um, and uh, you can see why in the note I sent out, uh, intellectual capital. This is what we're about. We're about great ideas that help our clients. And this has been Rashir's entire life, and I'm thrilled that you're here with us. And I did tell Rashir I would close uh, with a quotation. Uh, this one is, <laughs> excuse me, from Abraham Lincoln who said, quote, always bear in mind that your own resolution to succeed is more important than any other, end quote. And I was looking for a quote, and I thought of you with that because you've been so driven and so focused on moving things forward in life, and Lincoln would say that was the most important reason why you've been as successful as you are. So I'm thrilled that you're on the team here. To our clients, our colleagues, and our friends at Rockefeller, thank you for joining us today. Uh, stay well as uh, we work our way through winter into spring, and I look forward to seeing you uh, live here in New York uh, when you can get here uh, as it's uh, reopening. Uh, and um, uh, with the warm weather, I think that will take place at a rapid clip. So many thanks, and we'll see you all soon on the next program.